You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 218. We're back from an especially long, hurricane-prolonged summer. (laughs) And I am here online with none other than Dr. David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things? Uh, Well, high, dry, and cooling. Right on. And the one Christian Humanist Podcast host who hasn't seen a hurricane recently... Dr. Michael Farmer, he's an assistant professor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how have you been? I've been good. David, could you give us an update on the city of Houston? I feel like once Irma once Irma happened, everybody stopped caring about Houston. Is, is the cleanup going okay there? There's, there's going to be cleanup going on in a lot of places for a long time. Uh, the biggest uh, kind of... I, obviously, everyone who lost a home—that's a—that's a big impact for them. Um, the thing that's causing the biggest impact to the community as a whole is some of the uh, the major traffic uh, arteries in, uh, especially kind of the western part of the city. Uh, the ones that 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 went over the places where those reservoirs filled up. Um, yeah, some some of those arteries are not quite clear yet. Uh, which is making commutes to and from work uh, especially especially tough. It's better well, it than it was al- already terrible, right? I mean, <laughs> Houston <laughs> well, traffic is legendary. I mean, Houston has a reputation for for bad for bad traffic, but it's a very confusing place to drive if you're not from here. It's very very busy, but the the redundancy of major traffic arteries means that generally things are more smooth than not. It's not LA. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's uh, in fact I've, I've experienced more gridlock um, on the loop around Atlanta than I have most of the time uh, in 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 Houston. But and to be fair, Atlanta's pretty legendary too. Yeah, I would say I would say Atlanta, LA, and Houston are the, the three big ones. All right. of this goes to prove what I've been saying for years, which is they should bring back the Aqua Car. <laughs> also Super Train. Also oh, Super Train. Yes. Yeah, that that was a that was a meme from the downtimes, um, dear listeners. This is what Michael does when there's no podcast to record. Every few weeks, I try to make a, a new uh, a new hashtag happen. And uh, bring back Super Train 2017 didn't work, and neither did uh, Harvey the Hurricane Hawk for president. Yeah, well, you know, usually you don't vote for hawkish presidents, but you know that one. 
Oh, heavens. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, if we didn't have a brand new intern, I think I might ask her to drop in the sad trombone there, but I don't want to <laughs> give her too much to do. Oh, do we want to do we want to introduce our new intern to to the listeners or the new listeners to our intern? Yeah, <laughs> well, go ahead. Go that, ahead, Michael. Never done that before. We've never done that before, but uh, okay. Our new intern is named Ellen Peterson. She's one of my students. Excellent. Well, you know, the, 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 the intern always gets mentioned in the credits at the end, and I didn't want people to hit the credits and go, wait, wait, what? <laughs> What's happened uh, to Amberly? Exactly. And the answer is that Amberly graduated, yes? Yes. Successful matriculation. It's part of the design. Very good. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about what's going on on the network. City of Man is still uh, cranking out the episodes. They've done recent talks about global warming. There's a, a sort of an interview interlude about September 11. Uh, and then their other recent episode I haven't listened to yet. Have you guys had a chance to? Remind me of the topic. I don't remember. So, sorry, Ed. <laughs> sorry, Coyle. I, uh, <laughs> They're producing um, so much we can't keep track. It, it's true. It's true. I, yeah. uh, it, and it's all good content. So go listen to it. Uh, uh, speaking of good content, you know, Sectarian Review is still dropping episodes every couple weeks. And then uh, recently, uh, you know, Danny contacted me and said, you know, we need to do this lightning episode on this new website that's probably going to be out of business by the end of the week. So <laughs> we uh, basically, in the span of 24 hours, we conceived the episode, recorded it. Danny edited it. I put it online. I think it might be our fastest turnaround ever for a podcast. Nice. No, no, that's not true. We because we we once we recorded late once and had I had the episode up an hour and a half after we finished recording. Okay, well there you go. So it it is uh, the second place <laughs> in the uh, fast turnaround Olympics. I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I'm dying to because I'm obsessed with uh, Verrett. I I just like. It, is, it seems like such a monumentally stupid idea. It really is. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a new podcast, Before They Were Live, which is uh, me and Josh Altman Schoffer working our way through the Disney animated canon. Mm. We, uh, this month we did Fantasia, so as you can tell, we're, we're three months in. So if you're not listening to that, uh, we have a pretty good time, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You you guys are making me talk to myself. Um, when I listen, I keep I keep wanting to dive in, and then I I'm not on it. <laughs> high, high praise, I suppose, David. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really really enjoying these. Go go listen to before they were live. One one and all, it's yeah, they a are lot quite of fun. good. I've enjoyed also, them. Altman Schofer does these incredibly elaborate show notes for them which mm-hmm. I, like makes mm-hmm. me feel bad for the quality of our show notes so which our listeners can find at before they were dot live so clever well we picked the title we picked the title of the show so that we could get a dot live uh website nice that, that's great <laughs> I, I i love the i love the little musical bumps between kind of, I guess, the segments of the conversation. I keep thinking I'm listening to public radio. 
Why, thank you. That uh, I do that. I edit that show myself because of those musical interludes. But it was all Josh's idea. Like everything good on that show, it's all Josh Altman's show for. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, well, guys, I mean, let's go ahead and get rolling on today. Uh, this is our debut episode of our, what is this, ninth year doing podcasts, which is pretty <sighs> awesome, uh, <laughs> as Michael Huffs. Um, and it is also the 30th anniversary of a movie that we've mentioned here and there over eight years, which is The Princess Bride. So let's go ahead and promise listeners that we are going to spoil with impunity. Uh, <laughs> this movie is 30 years old and a high school youth group classic. So listener, if you haven't seen it yet, just go see it and then listen to this. All right. Even though you're like 10 minutes in to the intro, but you know, we're still not anywhere near like homebrewed Christianity intro level. So we're all right. Anyway, with that out of the way, Michael, I can't imagine doing this episode without a personal reflection segment. Hmm. So lead us off with your favorite Princess Bride story. If it involves youth ministers and mute buttons, so much the better. My youth minister did not mute the uh, the section in question, as far as I can remember. I don't have any great stories about this. I did my youth group did watch it at lock ends um, more than once. I've probably seen it two or three times before I watched it for this program over the weekend. Um, Victoria, my wife, claims she's seen it thirty times. Right. So maybe maybe she should be here in my stead, but I don't have I don't have any super super interesting stories about it. My friends went and I went around quoting all the uh, the big lines that everybody knows, um, mm-hmm. but it's not like uh, well, I don't know. Maybe you, one of you has a better story than me. So it's not Back to the Future where you it's watched not. it every year for. 30 years or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really not my um my experience with this. I mean, I've seen it and I I know it and it's a good movie and I enjoy it, but it's it's certainly not one that was force-fed to me over and over again like it seems to be for some people. Okay. David, what do you got? I first saw it. It must have been uh not not in the theater, but it must have been on VHS a few years after it came out cuz it came out was it 87? Yeah, 30 years ago. Wow, 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 wow. Um, <laughs> I don't think I was 12 yet. Uh, so, yeah, so in, so in, I would have turned, I th- yeah, I, th- I think I'm, it must have been about a year later. I was 10 years old, and I remember this because I remember two feelings quite distinctly. One feeling incredibly uncomfortable and like, you know, like the boy in the movie when they kissed. <laughs> and two, being pretty freaked out about the R.O.U.S.'s. Okay. They're pretty creepy in that creature shop way. Yeah. <laughs> um, the R.O.U.S.'s, that, that kind of wigged me out, and then the kissing wigged me out. I don't remember what we did with... I, I don't remember what happened with the bleep moment. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I was, I don't even know if I watched it all the way through. I was at, uh, I was at a friend's house. Our moms were talking in the other room while we were watching the movie. I don't even know if we were there for all of it, but, but that was just (laughs) sort of burned into me. Um, But yeah, it did become, it was definitely part of our youth group culture. Um, I watched it several times in those kinds of contexts, and it was one that we we were constantly quoting, like uh, like Holy Grail. 
So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, my my adolescence is inexplicable if you re- remove Princess Bride from it. Very good. You know, I think that the, the R-O-U-S moment that freaks me out still is when he pries the critter's mouth open, the tongue starts wagging. Oh, the oh. tongue. That's... Yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> oh, that tongue. <laughs> it's like um, a... Like David, I saw it on a VHS rental. Uh, you know, listeners, there used to be these rectangular solids called VHS tapes, and you used to be able to rent them overnight. I, I like to um, tell my students it's like a red box you walk into. <laughs> Uh, and you know, it was really just a few months after my dad had shown me Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So I kind of got hit back to back with these movies. Uh, so, you know, they were, they were cornerstones for me early. Uh, one memory that I did that's very distinct for me is that, uh, in the opening seconds of the movie, not even the opening minutes, uh, Fred Savage's character, and I don't even know if that character has a name. The boy. Um. yeah, the boy, there you go, Yes, uh, is playing uh, hardball on his Atari, and that is actually a game that my dad had on his Commodore 64 and that I used to play, so uh, that first of all, that's how old I am, and second of all, that was the immediate visceral connection for me, is that uh, I recognized the uh, baseball interface on the opening video game. Nice. You're probably about the same age as Fred Savage, right? How old is Fred Savage? I don't know. I mean, I remember when Wonder Years was on TV... You know, I remember watching it as, you know, someone my age, but X number of years ago. This is 87. Fred Savage is 9 or 10 in the movie. Yeah, and I was 10 at the time, so that works. Yeah. You know what struck me this time, and and I don't know why it didn't occur to me before, is, is, like, this is clearly a Jewish family. (laughs) Fred Savage, and then Peter Falk, uh, Mm -hmm. with a really magnificent performance as the grandfather, but, like, it never Mm. occurred to me that... They'd be Jewish. I, I guess last time I saw this, I didn't really know the cultural markers of American Jewry. <laughs> nice. And yet, and yet, if you look at it, there's a really weird, like, Santa Claus hanging on Fred Savage's closet door. Did you notice yes, that? Yes, there is. What is yes. that? What? what? <laughs> I have no idea. That's what I want to see the movie about. I want to see a movie about the the making the making of that weird Santa Claus. That could be the uh, that could be the sequel. Nice. <laughs> Princess Bride Two, dangling Santa. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, David, I'm aware that there's a novel associated with this movie, but I've never read it, and honestly, I probably never will. So let's talk about Andre the Giant. At least part of what makes this movie so fun is the range of idiosyncratic performances, including Andre's benevolent mumbling. So, along with the hippopotamic landmass, what other joyful screen characters come out of this movie? Well, we already talked about the grandfather and the boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and why do we? Well, that we spend we spend a lot of time with them. I I, I always forget, and I'm and always kind of remember with a bit of like, oh yeah at the beginning of the movie i always forget that the mother is there too yeah yeah just just to shuffle the grandfather into the room yes albeit Mm -hmm. briefly (laughs) but i I always forget that she's there anyways um i love i love the grandfather grandson interaction uh I, i can't imagine um loving the movie as much as i do without that and the, mm-hmm. uh, and the way that the way that they flip back and forth, um, I have read the novel. 
And the premise of the novel, is, William Goldman, is that he is presenting uh, what he calls the good parts version mm-hmm. uh, of the Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern. Uh, the idea is that there is this old book that his father would read to him when he was a kid, but his father skipped a lot of stuff. And so the version that he remembers is the parts his dad read. And so what what is in the novel is supposed to be the good parts version of this older and completely non-existent novel. <laughs> so uh, what they're actually doing with the... Uh, the grandfather grandson is is trying to capture the back and forth that goes on in the novel between uh, the the narrator and his memories of what his father did with particular scenes. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, in terms of my favorite ones, everybody's my favorite. I, <laughs> I watched it. I watched it again last night, and and I was just struck by just how much I loved every performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I've tried really, really hard to think of some. I guess the only forgettable one is Mom. You know, and she's on screen for what ten seconds. <laughs> yes, but um, it, it, Andre the Giant definitely is amazing. But that whole that whole trio. Of Mandy Patinkin, mm-hmm. uh, not Patimkin, as I called it when my wife and I were watching it. Right, that, that's a di- that's different. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Mandy. Patinkin. Well, I thought I thought the part where Inigo Montoya killed all those Russian peasants on the stairs was <laughs> <laughs> kind of they're kind of uh, kind of alighting some things there. Um, yeah, his Inigo Montoya is just fantastic, and Wallace Shawn's Vasini. Um, the, and and their interactions were such a model of of interactions between me and my friends. Um, we would just do those routines back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's just so 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 lovely. But some someone stopped me. I'm I'm get, I'm, be, I'm becoming <laughs> hagiographic. <laughs> all right, all right, Michael. So he took the uh, trio of kidnappers. Who else do you want to talk about? We got to talk about Christopher Guest as uh, as the character. oh man, yes. Uh, which is, as I rewatched this as an adult, is really a terrifying uh, performance as far as this movie goes. Because the the, the mm-hmm. scene I'm thinking of is when he very calmly explains the uh, the torture mechanism to uh, to Wesley. Uh, he he speaks in this dispassionate, almost kind, scientific term. Do do make sure you tell me. Do make sure you you tell me how it really makes you feel. Uh, this will mm-hmm. be recorded for posterity. I, he's that's a really terrifying character, mm-hmm. and uh, only to have it turn into high comedy at the end when he turns and flees from uh, an ego Montoya <laughs> and has what I think may be the best line reading in the whole movie, which is really saying something. Uh, when when Anigo keeps saying, uh, you killed my father, prepare to die, he just keeps saying it over and over again. He yells, stop saying that. <laughs> that's, the sort, that's the sort of thing I think is funny. <laughs> well, I, I love it when uh, he's, you know, he's just throwing the dagger and Anigo's like, you know, kind of slumping down the wall. And uh, he he basically just recites Inigo's story back to him. Is this you? And then he and then he says, 
that's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then before that, it's, you're not still trying to win, are you? Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but, Christopher he, Guest. I don't he, know if I said that before, yeah. but... Uh, yeah. Almost unrecognizable to me, but Christopher Guest is almost always unrecognizable to me. And uh, oh yeah, he's and, he's got some serious flexibility that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just amazing. Hey, uh, we haven't really talked about Andre the Giant, but, uh, but I, I have to say the Andre the Giant story, which is he was Samuel Beckett's driver <laughs> in France. Did you guys know that? Uh, reverse that. Yeah, when he was a teenager, he drove Samuel Beckett around. It was his job. Oh, okay, okay. I, I had always heard that Samuel Beckett drove Andre the Giant to school. Wait, maybe I've got it wrong then. Anyway, they Yeah, because Andre the Giant connected. was too big to fit on the school bus is the story that I heard. See, uh, I heard that Andre the Giant carried Samuel Beckett. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, listeners, if you know the actual... <laughs> Samuel Beckett, Andre the Giant story. Let us know which of us is remembering it wrong. <laughs> no, yeah, whichever. Somebody drove somebody. Is Samuel Andre the Giant Beckett was friends with Andre, Samuel yeah. Beckett? Is Samuel Beckett in Andre the Giant's posse? That's that's the important thing. Somehow, that's the most absurd thing that Samuel Beckett's ever been involved in. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's saying the, something. The Andre the Giant performance. I'm not even really sure you can call it a performance because he doesn't seem to be acting so much as remembering his lines. <laughs> uh, but it's it's so warm and so sweet. Yeah, like it's mm-hmm. no wonder that's that's what everybody remembers from the movie. Right, right. Um, and then uh, oh, I have just forgotten the actor's name. The uh, Princess Buttercup slash Claire Underwood. Oh, Robin White. Robert, that, that's it. Robin Wright. Um, again, I mean, you know, if if you are a fan of. Um, house of cards as i am and it's definitely a a guilty pleasure for me i I'll, I'll grant that you know it has its flaws so if you need to write in and upbraid me for that feel free but um i think part of what makes her so terrifying in that show is my memories of this movie 30 years ago mm. sure we haven't said anything about carrie elwis oh. mm-hmm. who is known basically for this and robin hood men and tights yeah but who is, uh, it's really a, a tremendous performance, you warthog-faced buffoon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know if you've seen, uh, and I've seen it, I think, a hundred times because I've got an eight-year-old daughter, uh, Ella Enchanted. He is, he, he makes quite a good evil prince. Hmm. I have not seen that. Me, and, and I mean, he, he is, I mean, I, I don't know if this is Carrie Elwes or if this is the director of Ella Enchanted, but I mean, his delivery is just identical to Wesley in that movie. So, I mean, to, to turn, you know, young, beautiful Wesley into, you know, middle-aged, terrifying, evil prince mm-hmm. is quite a stroke in that movie. Yeah, I wonder I wonder how much range he really has, because as I was watching through this, I realized that a lot of scenes I thought were in this were actually in Robin Hood Men in Tights. well i mean i'm going to at once out myself as someone who enjoys really bad movies and also as someone who has no business discussing film but uh he played the rival to tom cruise in days of thunder Mm -hmm. and is actually i mean a pretty convincing oklahoma redneck wow 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I the first time I saw it, you know, I had to do a double take when he was first on screen because I expected an English accent and there was none coming. Mm-hmm. He was also the villain in, and this is long ago, um, the the first Alex Cross movie with Morgan Freeman, Kiss the Girls. He was. I forgot about that. He's scary. Oh, man, I forgot about that. Yeah. And yeah. he's terrifying. So, huh. Yeah, he he was also in a movie I watched as a teenager, uh, rather shamefully, uh, <laughs> the, the Crush. Do you guys remember that movie? Uh-uh. I do not. It was it was an Alicia Silverstone vehicle, which is why I watched it. <laughs> uh, he plays go. he plays this. Uh, I th- I think he's a college professor. This fourteen year old girl mm-hmm. keeps trying to get him to uh, have relations with her. Oh my! Oh heavens! Uh, he was in a lighter vein. He was also a recurring character on Psych. As a as a super thief, master criminal kind of guy, he was hmm. kind of born to play like an international jewel thief. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, well, he's, do we he's, want to go through anybody else's IMDb page? Well, I, I mean, you know, I. <laughs> I mean, and then I mean, you know, the one scene wonder. I mean, I, I, I'm probably a bad person for enjoying Billy Crystal as much as I do in this movie, but it's Victoria's favorite too. <laughs> He's wonderful, and the impressive the, the impressive clergyman, right? Mm-hmm. No, no youth group is complete without someone able to do the Mowage speech. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've actually, uh, when I've done weddings for my students, they have requested that I do it in that character, and I've always refused. But <laughs> <laughs> that's still a request I have gotten. You don't, you don't want to perform a novelty wedding. No, I do not. I, I I know people who have, and I just don't want to be that guy. It's fair. Plus, so. Michael Scott did it on The Office. And at that oh, point, did he really? At that point, can't can't you say it's pretty played out? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Michael, I do want to turn to another subject matter, and I'm throwing this your way because I've wondered on occasion, but I've always been too lazy to actually research it. <laughs> Uh, where does this film fall in the career of Mark Knopfler relative to the Dire Straits catalog? And what do those who truly love rock and roll think about his involvement in this film? And while you're in the neighborhood, say what you want to say about the movie's score. Uh, so I had no idea Mark Knopfler did the score to this movie until you said that. <laughs> um, this, this would have been 87. This is right after the peak of the Dire Straits popularity. So they put out... Brothers in Arms in 1985, which is, which is for sure their biggest album. It's the one with um, Money for Nothing on it. Oh yeah, I love that album. It's a great album, and and uh, I think Knopfler is maybe the most underrated rock guitarist of the last 50 years, which I guess is to say ever, because um, you never hear anybody <laughs> talk about what a great guitar player he is. But he's really, I mean, really a a great player with a very distinctive sound, which you do hear, uh, by the way, in the movie. The, mm-hmm. the way he plays the acoustic guitar sounds like a kind of lighter version of Mark Knopfler's guitar playing. I don't find the score particularly compelling or interesting. Um, mm-hmm. to, to me, it's it's more of a novelty than anything else that Mark Knopfler performed it, because this is, this is not... I, I own a few movie soundtracks. This is not one I can imagine buying, and I've already forgotten what the song that he sings at the end is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, as for what other people think, I have no idea. Uh, this is, like I said, not something I've ever heard anybody talk about as a black eye or as a, as a, uh, you know, a feather in his, feather in his cap. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's a 
curiosity. It's just something this. he did after Brothers in Arms. Yeah. And before okay. the one after that. There's a the last Dire Straits album is like eighty eight, eighty nine, I think. So mm-hmm. this is toward the end of his career with the Dire Straits. Okay. I mean, David, I, I and again, I Michael's only seen this a handful of times. I've probably seen it a few dozen. Um, is there anything you've got to say about the music? <sighs> I've never listened to the song that's uh, well after you get the the credits clips with the with the actual faces and it gets in the rest of the credits. Um, mm. As soon as he starts singing, that's always where I turn it off. <laughs> uh, me too. Me too. Um, I like the I like the music over the over the credits with the pictures though the that the that's got like a nice wistfulness to it, but through most of the movie, it sounds so synthesizer-y. It's very nineteen eighty seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that to me has not aged well. And 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 when I was watching through it, I watched it through it again last night because I wanted I wanted fresh impressions and the whole time I was thinking about how much how much I would I had my memories of it had misremembered and underestimated the production the visual production values because the soundtrack Mm -hmm. was a synthesizer like there are some amazing set pieces in this there's there's some amazing design work going on on camera but because what's going on over it is is kind of synthesizer for whatever reason it feels <laughs> it feels cheaper um I, I but you know i I've, i guess i've spent the last 30 years building up that particular bias <laughs> against movies from the 80s so mm-hmm yeah, I mean, in that respect, I mean, it reminds me of the movie Hoosiers, uh, which I didn't subject you guys to last year when it was its 30-year anniversary. Thank you. Um, in, that <laughs> in that, you know, the part of the music of that movie that everyone remembers is the sort of, you know, cowboy movie, Aaron Copeland-sounding music that's going on when they're actually playing basketball, mm-hmm. which is just wonderful. And, you know, I'm, I'm an Indiana kid, so, you know, that was the, the soundtrack of my youth. But then the other parts of the movie also have this weird synthesizer 1986 feel to them uh, in the same way that, you know, this one, I mean, and honestly, it kind of does my postmodern heart good to hear it over these scenes. But, you know, when Wesley is in pursuit of the kidnappers mm-hmm. and you get that, you know, very synthesizer chase music going on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Can't even do the noise. Uh. Yeah. Well, and even even the acoustic guitar sound is very um, very modified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know. It, I think it works. the 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 movie is is a weird mixture of of the uh, the classic and the modern. I, mm-hmm. I I wouldn't say the 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 score does not do anything for me, but I wouldn't say it detracts from the movie. I I think it mm-hmm. I think it fits the movie pretty well. I mean, this is well, a yeah, movie, I mean, this is a movie that opens with a kid playing Atari baseball. Yeah, that's true. And I guess the other thing I would say is try to imagine Inigo Montoya delivering a speech without that acoustic guitar in the background. I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> for you know, it for the longest time I didn't even notice that was there. 
Oh yeah. Because it's so it's so perfectly of the moment that I didn't even recognize that there was music, and then mm-hmm. and then I realized how much of the way I feel in those moments uh, is is coming from that. So okay, yeah, I'll tip my hat in that direction. Good job, <laughs> good job, guitar, Anigo guitar. Plus, plus, uh, <laughs> any any opportunity to recommend people listen to the Dire Straits. Oh sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Go listen to Brothers in Arms. I mean, right now, pause our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Money for Nothing is the one everybody remembers, but the song I like is uh, Walk of Life. I, I like that one a great deal. Um, oh, I, and I mean, I, I always kind of like the the weird little idiosyncratic tracks, but the uh, the man's too big, the man's too strong. I forget the name of the track, but that's the refrain. I dig that one probably more than anything on that album. Hmm. David, what's your favorite Dire Straits song? Uh, I can only I can only name Money for Nothing. And you know it from the Weird Al version, right? Uh, no, <laughs> I I know it from the radio. I know it from the Weird Al version. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, David, when I think about this movie next to some of the adventure flicks that I've loved over the years. One feature that stands out is the right balance of real on-screen technique and real light-hearted fun in the fight scenes. So, in your view, I mean, how does the swordplay and the wrestling here stack up to other movies that feature such entertainments? The swordplay is definitely in the old-fashioned Tyrone Power kind of... uh, swashbuckler right this is this is this is very errol flynn (laughs) yes and uh by 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 intention um that that's that's what's that's what they're meaning to evoke that's what they're quoting so to speak and it's beautiful and by and when i say it i mean especially the inigo westley duel Mm -hmm. that is lovely um I would, that, that's something that I would never ever skip or fast forward. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I don't think the the sword play later on um, Inigo versus uh, Count Rugen. I don't think it holds up as well, but I don't think that Christopher Guest is as well trained in it as either Mandy Patinkin or Carrie Elwes are. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would be. Uh, if, if you if you pay close attention and kind of compare those two scenes, um, the, at least at least to me there seems to be uh, a, a an imbalance. Um, but I read I have not confirmed because I didn't see any source cited, but I have read you know how they start off they're fighting left handed, yeah, and then they switch to right handed. And maybe, maybe, maybe you guys have heard this, but um, I read that they actually built mirrored sets, and that at the beginning of the fight they are fighting red, red, uh, right-handed, but they flipped the film. No way. Yes, <laughs> that that that's that that's what I've read. That that at the beginning they are fighting right-handed, but they flip the film so that it looks like they're fighting left-handed, and then they film the second half of the fight on a mirror image set, um, so that uh, so that the set stays the same, but the hands are the the hands look like they're different. Oh, that's fascinating. Huh. I, I've never heard that, but I 
it makes sense because I mean there is a genuine uh, deafness to the way that they handle the blades. Yes, which which is amazing, and I was I always thought, wow, what what amazing effort these two actors put into mastering, you know, cinematic swordplay. Mm-hmm. You know, ambidextrously. Um, but I would imagine that they probably actually got out of the movie cheaper just building that whole set twice. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, the wrestling isn't so much wrestling. <laughs> it's mostly just sort of hanging on. Uh, Andre the Giant is his own special effect. They didn't... <laughs> I, I, I don't know how much they really needed to choreograph with him. He, I mean, he's already trained in fight choreography, right? Uh, oh, sure, sure. So just as, as long as he doesn't hurt Carrie Elwes, um, <laughs> I think he was probably okay. This movie has less, less action in it than I remembered, but I think... Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but that's still what stands out in my memory. I think because of that big that big fencing scene. Mm-hmm. Michael, what do you think? I I I agree. It's a it's a great Errol Flynn tribute that that scene, and uh, it's 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 amazing. His stance and everything, and I'm talking about Carrie Elwes in particular. He's he's such a he's just a visual quote. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, so it's much no of that. wonder they picked him to play Robin Hood and Robin Hood Men in Tights. No one else oh, could sure, do it. Sure. <laughs> he makes a better Robin Hood than Kevin Costner, that's for sure. We should do an episode oh, um, on the various film versions of Robin Hood. Hmm. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. I'm Wait. writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the Inigo and Wesley fight, I mean, really is, you know one of the centerpieces of this movie. It really is great. Um, I, I think, you know, kind of jumping back to the last conversation we had, I mean, the what augments Christopher Guest, because you're right, I mean, he's not as impressive visually, mm-hmm. is the fact that, you know, they write the score behind that scene so that the accents in the music coincide with every stroke of the sword. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as they move more quickly across the room, the mu- the music picks up. And, you know, when they come to their standstill, you know, you get the string trill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, that that's one of those scenes that, again, I have a hunch that if you would take the soundtrack off of that scene, it wouldn't be nearly as impressive. Mm-hmm. Which is what, you know, it's kind of the John Williams effect that way. <laughs> you know, what's going on musically tells your body that what's going on here is important. Yeah. Well, and the ban- uh, and the banter through all of it. Uh, oh, sure, sure. That that just heaps up that that you know Christopher Guest menace we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, the Andre the Giant, I'll admit, I mean, I I really love not necessarily the choreography, but the camera work mm-hmm. because I mean, for the first part of that, I mean, Andre the Giant's fist is going to hit you in the head <laughs> every time he throws a punch, uh, and I just love that that shot. Every time it happens. The bonk. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, you know, once he latches onto him and, you know, he starts to drop from the sleeper hold, I mean, you know, that's that's just Andre the Giant being enormous, and I'm all right with that. But uh, 
you know, the, the giant fist coming straight into the camera. I just, I just love. Did so, you, are you guys old enough to have watched him in the WWF? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, I mean, the fact that I love Andre the giant is pure nostalgia because when I've looked at some of his bouts on YouTube, he really is just a giant mass that lumbers around the ring. Like later, uh, big men in the WWE are definitely more entertaining as far as their choreography. But because he was Andre the Giant and because I was a kid, I still remember him fondly. William Goldman said he's the nicest person he's ever met. I believe it. He is certainly like the, the emotional center of that movie. Mm-hmm. I love that character so much. <laughs> well, Michael, I know that uh, youth ministers uh, sometimes try to eliminate the one cuss word from this movie with ill-timed mute buttons, and we still haven't like actually told that story. We just keep alluding to it, because I think we told it nine years ago when we were doing the very first episode. Anyway, eight <laughs> years ago, whatever. Uh, Wait, we talked about the Princess Bride in the first episode of this podcast? Or not the very first, I mean like episode like four or five when we were talking about youth ministry. Oh. Anyway, anyway. I don't remember this. Is this something that happened in your youth group, Nathan? No, I think it's a story you actually told, Michael. The youth, My youth minister trying to mute? Uh, or no, you, you, you made reference to youth ministers, you know, always timing it wrong and, you know, muting it right after he says what he says. <laughs> well, if I if I said that, I certainly don't remember that actually happening in my youth group. But maybe all right, I, I don't know. I'm, well, at any rate, mute buttons aside, there are really some weird things going on in this movie, and I mean, maybe even reasons that Christians should be suspicious beyond what gets muted. Right? I mean, so for instance, revenge is romanticized and never really questioned ethically. Uh, the male lead spends some significant off-camera time murdering people at sea. A or suicide claim, attempt. He does. Ah, and you know, suicide is basically a setup for an awkward attempt at wit. So, I mean, is this movie's near universal acclaim among youth ministers yet another sign that moral therapeutic deism has won the day, or is something else going on here? It is certainly a little strange. I will say that, at least in my youth group, this was never held up as, like, a sermon illustration or anything like that. So, they weren't they weren't telling us to watch it in order to get any kind of moral lessons out of it, as far as I know. Okay, so it's not The Matrix. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, um, I, I, I think one defense of this could be, it is a relatively clean movie that everybody loves, and that uh, will distract... A bunch of fourteen-year-olds for uh, for an hour and a half. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, if I were talking on this podcast six months ago, I might be able to make that argument with some sort of credibility. But people who listen to the Pinocchio episode before they were <laughs> live uh, will remember that I spent about twenty minutes suggesting that maybe we shouldn't be showing children Pinocchio because its message is so fundamentally <laughs> anti-Christian. Uh-huh. So I think if I made that argument then, if I'm not just going to be a raging hypocrite, I'm going to have to make it here too and say that perhaps this is uh, this is teaching us even more than uh, it would be if we were if we were uh, if we were consciously trying to pull a moral lesson from it. That that the the world of this this movie is is if not anti-Christian, at least godless. Um, is there a religious reference at all beyond the impressive clergyman? 
Uh, Inigo like does a prayer to the saints to help him find, you know, the six fingered man so he can kill him. Well, prayer, prayer to dad at least. Well, I mean, but I mean that's the form that it takes. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> so yeah, I um I I think you kind of have a point that that it, it is it is weird that like this is the this is the movie every youth group watches. This is the one thing <laughs> all evangelicals share. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm teaching. Uh, I'm teaching the real scandal of the evangelical mind tomorrow by Carl Truman, and he says he says there's essentially no uh, no through line from all for all evangelicals, and I really think maybe he is forgetting about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Nice. Catholic, nice. I don't know if Catholic kids watch it or not. That's really, really uh, funny. Let listeners inform us. <laughs> That's really funny. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I will fall back onto what I said in that Pinocchio episode, which is I'm not really very comfortable being a prude about this. I don't actually think we shouldn't watch things mm-hmm. that, but the, the fact that, the fact that we see this thing over and over and over again, the fact that uh, you, you, you have it to some extent committed to memory, that, that's got to be a mm-hmm. little disturbing. Oh, sure, sure. Well, and, and, and here's the sleight of hand that, that catches me is that a number of years ago, and I can't remember exactly how long ago, um, I saw an, an interview with Mandy Patinkin. It might have been for the 25th anniversary of the movie, where, uh, you know, he said that, you know, his favorite Inigo line is not the, uh, you know, you killed my father prepared to die, but it's at the end where he says, you know, now that I'm out of the revenge business, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And then in that interview, Mandy Patinkin gives this, you know, lovely sort of, you know, quasi-Buddhist, you know, this is why, you know, revenge is ultimately harmful and, you know, the only way that's worth living is love and, you know, we need to, you know, let go of the things that harm us and, you know, just seek to do good for our neighbors. And for some reason, for the five years between that and when I watched it prepping for this episode, I thought that Inigo Montoya actually said all that. (laughs) And he doesn't. Yeah, no, he doesn't. He doesn't say all that. Um, I, I do like that you drew attention to that that he drew attention to that moment because I, um, I'd read the questions, your questions and Mm -hmm. before watching it last night. And so I was kind of watching it with those in mind. And when he, when he kills Rugen, Mm -hmm. first of all, what he says, I want my father back. And then your youth minister bleeps it. Um, I want my father, but the futility of it, I want my father back. And he kills him, and Rugen drops to the ground, and he just kind of looks at him for a little bit, and then turns and staggers out of the room. And then he just, you know, that, that moment in the window where he just seems so empty. There's something very, I, you know, I, I, I would hope intentionally anticlimactic about that moment. Because okay. he doesn't say, I want justice for my father, or I want to avenge my father. He says, I want my father back. And that's the one thing that his revenge doesn't do. Okay. And then... and, and see, here, here's where, you know, <laughs> my, Michael made the Jamie Smith argument on Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to try out a Jamie Smith argument here. Mm-hmm. He, he, he does say that, mm-hmm. but what the music is doing in that scene is building up to that moment and there's such a release when he kills him. Yes. That I mean, musically, that is the high point of the movie. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and it's the it's the last climax of the movie too, because there is no climactic battle between Wesley and uh, Humperdinck. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? <laughs> he gets away with it. <laughs> Sorry, go keep going, Michael. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't have any more. <laughs> I just had to throw the Fred Savage in there. <laughs> Jiminy Cricket, Grandpa. <laughs> He doesn't say Jiminy Cricket, does he? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. <laughs> that, that, that's the part that no youth minister ever tries to mute. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm just trying to think through this, and I, I'm glad you bring that up, David, because, I mean, there is that emptiness at the end. But, again, just because of what's going on visually and musically, I mean, when I think of where this movie is going, it's going to that moment. And, you know, Michael's right that after that, you know, it looks like that's going to be the penultimate battle. And then the ultimate battle is going to be between, you know, um, Sarandon and Carrie Elwes, but then it doesn't happen. So, I mean, that kind of remains as the high moment as far as dramatic tension in the movie. you're wrong and now i'm gonna show you are okay i just stabbed grubs michael let's finish the episode just the two of us sounds good (laughs) so here we are running up on the end of the episode and i've yet to mention fred savage columbo the fire swamp the machine the cliffs of insanity or any of a dozen other things that could have occupied our time so michael since the two of us uh we're gonna very briefly go around the horn uh, what else in this movie deserves some of our attention and why? Well, we did actually already talk about Fred Savage and the grandfather. I, I, I assume, I assume you wrote this, this, uh, question before we actually recorded. Uh, I know you did cause you sent them to us in advance. Yes. Um, but I want to, it's almost go- like the WWF match was scripted. <laughs> I want to return to, um, I want to return to that and talk about the, the brilliance of that as a, as a framing device. So, um, uh, the, to hear Grubbs explain it, it's taking the place of a similarly, a similarly distancing device in the book, which I haven't read. Um, but here, it allows you both to take the story seriously as a story, and it distances you from the story, so you can make fun of the story. It makes it, it makes it appropriate both for you to be emotionally attached to the story, and um, and for you to see the story as outrageously artificial uh it it allows them to break the tropes of the fairy tale while maintaining that or while pointing out that they're breaking the tropes of the fairy tale it's really it's really a great example of what you might call soft postmodernism uh because because it feels seamless it's not it's not uh alienating to the viewer even a child can can appreciate it and yet it is it is calling the veracity of the story into question while also um reifying the story is that the right postmodern term yeah i like it i like it i mean and it's just a lot of fun i mean when the screen doesn't cut back to peter falk and fred savage but you still hear their voices commenting on it in a sort of proto mystery science theater move also, I'm just never going to complain about a movie starring Peter, Peter Falk. 
This is true. This is true. Which again, I mean, every every role that he ever plays, I I see Columbo. So I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just one more. I, thing. I, I, the, this guy's just Grandpa Columbo, and that and I'm all right with that. <laughs> have, have you seen Wings of Desire? No, I haven't. Do you know? Do you know the plot of that movie? No, I don't. I, I'm about to spoil Wings of Desire, everybody. So if you don't want it spoiled, skip ahead about two minutes. Wings of Desire is about an angel who falls in love with a human woman and wants to become human, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's also the plot of City of Angels, which is a really bad remake. Of, and also Preacher's Wife, and also... Right, well, Wings of Desire is first. Okay. Uh, but Peter Falk plays himself, Peter Falk, in the movie, but uh, as it turns out in this universe, Peter Falk is himself a one-time angel who became human. <laughs> but the, these German children follow him around and call him Columbo. Nice. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, that's if you're a Peter good. Falk fan, it's it, it's it, that's a really warm performance. Mm. Well, the part that I uh, always tell my students is the uh, most underrated joke in the film uh, is when they are fleeing from Wesley, having just you know kidnapped Buttercup. And, uh, you know, Vicini points and says, you know, he's too late. Look, the cliffs of insanity. And for the next 30 seconds, he can't summon any nouns. <laughs> so he actually goes mad for about 30 seconds on screen. And, you know, every time I've watched it with any group of people, I'm the only person laughing at that sequence. I, I uh, will admit that went right over my head, Nathan. <laughs> Move the thing and the other thing. <laughs> oh, I thought that was a joke about his complete lack of nautical knowledge that he fashions himself as this uh genius but really doesn't know anything about anything well no because he's been naming parts of boats all the time that they've been on the voyage but then they get to the cliffs of insanity and he can't summon any nouns i love it anyway i (laughs) like i said i'm the only person who likes that moment and i'm okay with that uh well at any rate uh since david uh is not oh okay and listeners, I actually didn't stab David Grubbs. Uh, he is sending me text messages, but I don't have his name on this phone. The power went out in his building, uh, but I thought some stranger had suddenly told me the power was going out in his building, and I said, how strange, because I'm not real good detective-wise. Uh, <laughs> but uh, David is going to be doing next week's show. He's going to be at the helm, and we're going to be doing the Sophocles tragedy Oedipus at Colonus. So if you want to read up on that, uh, feel free to do that. you got a week to do so. Uh, let's see here, Michael. Is there anything else that we need to talk about? I don't suppose so. So, you know, it wouldn't be Christian Humanist Podcast if we didn't have some kind of gremlin, right? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I, just, I mean, I just want to remind you, our very first episode we had to record twice because I deleted the whole stupid thing. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, at any rate, listeners... Uh, You've come to uh, forgive us for such things, so in the meantime, while you're waiting for that Sophocles episode, you can find us at ChristianHumanist.org, you can email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com, you can find us on Facebook, Uh, you can, of course, and we hope that you do, go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating, that is the most common way that people discover new podcast material, and of course, word of mouth is always appreciated. A lot of folks who have discovered our show have done so because other people have told us. No, other people have told other people about us. There we go. Prepositions. They matter. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. 
Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. Ellen Peterson is now our intern. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of the powerful Michael Farmer and the powerless David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.